Imagine that you were born with blurry vision and that you lived on an island full of people who also had blurry vision. Say the name of that island was the island of blurry vision. And maybe life looked like this. You saw people walking around and they looked like that. You would be out in nature, admiring nature, and, and then this is what you would see. And no one, you didn't really think anything of it because it's all you've ever known. You've always seen the world this way and everyone around you sees the world this way. Nobody tells you that clear vision is possible because nobody knows that it is. Nobody makes eyeglasses because no one thinks that anything can change or even needs to change. Everybody draws in huge images so that people can see it, and they write in a large, dark script. This following illustration of the island of blurry vision comes from a book by Phil Talon called The Absolute Basics of the Wesleyan Way, and I will be referencing it throughout the message today. If you lived on the island of blurry vision, it would never occur to you that you had a problem. You'd think, well, this is just what it means to be human. This is how it is. It would never occur to you that things could be different or that things could be better. So you've got a couple problems here. The first problem is that you can't see well. And that's just, that is a problem because you try to play baseball and you're going to get hit in the face, right? You just can't see, so it's a problem. You stumble on things, you trip on things. But the second problem is that you don't know that you can't see well. You're blind to the problem of blurry vision. You don't really understand that you have a problem even. Sin works similarly in our lives. The first problem is that we are all sick with sin, which is a problem. But the second problem is that most of us don't even know that we are sick with sin. Because everybody's got it, you know, so we think this is just what it means to be human. It's just how it has to be. But sin is a problem in a third way. The problem continues in that every time you sin, it gets easier to sin more. And then it becomes even easier until sinning becomes second nature and there's a snowballing effect and that's just what seems normal. Take example, listen to this example about a, a student who had a paper to write. We do have any students here who are at the end of their semesters writing papers. Okay, I'm writing one. I'm writing one today and tonight and tomorrow, so we've got to get that one done. But say that we've got a student who's a history, in a history class, and they've got a big paper. And they should have been practicing it all along. Say, say that you're the student, you should have been uh, preparing, excuse me, preparing for this all along. You should have been doing your research, you should have been working on it for a long time. You had plenty of time, but you procrastinated on it, you put off the reading. And so your mom comes to you and your mom says, hey, how's your paper going? And you're like, that is just so annoying that she's asking me that. Like, it's so irritating that she's bugging me about this paper. And you're in the middle of playing a video game and Obviously, you're not going to have a real conversation with her about this, and she, she should just bug off. And so your mom says, how's it going? And you say, fine. Then a little later, your dad comes by and says, hey, did you finish your paper? And you're still playing your video game, and you know you shouldn't be. But, you know, to get him off your back, you just say, yep. Later, you finally decide, okay, it's 
time to write my paper. Like, I really just need to do this now. And so you kind of quietly go up to your room, and you shut the door so no one knows you're actually going to start working on it now. And you sit down to start working on your paper, and you realize you need a book from the library, and you can't drive. So then you're in this situation. If you don't say anything, you can't finish your paper. But if you ask for a ride, your parents will know that you lied to them. A little lie to mom that everything was fine turned into a bigger lie to dad, and now you have a problem with the paper and with the parents. And this is how sin works. Little sins lead to bigger sins. We normalize things, things that don't seem like a big deal. We, we, we normalize, and things begin to snowball. Phil Talon says that when you get away with sin, the only thing you get away from is God. Last week, we began studying the passage of the, the parable of the prodigal son. And a parable is a teaching, a, a story picture that Jesus would give to teach certain truths to his listeners. And so Jesus tells the story about the prodigal son. Prodigal meaning excessively wasteful. It's this younger son who receives money from his father and he wastes it excessively. He wastes part of his life, he wastes the money, and, and sin does that. It will waste parts of your life. And just by way of review, the passage goes like this. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to go into it, but there's already a problem here. You don't ask your parent who is alive for them to give you the money that they would give you once they die. It's a little rude. It's not done. It's a very rude. It's not done. And, and already we're, we're set off that things are not as they should be. This is when things start to go wrong. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Here it gets more wrong. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So now things weren't going, things didn't start off great. Then he starts squandering. Things aren't going well. And then things get worse. Not only is he out of money, but then there's a natural disaster on top of it. So, so things get worse. So he went, verse 15, he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Things get worse and worse. He sells himself to work. He goes to work with pigs. He wants to eat the pig food, and then no one gives him anything. Snowballing problems, problem after problem after problem. And sin is this threefold problem. You're sick with sin. You don't even know you're sick with sin. And every time you sin, it gets easier to sin. And it just, we go further and further down the path. So how does God deal with this? Let's go back to the island of blurry vision. So let's say there's an optometrist, that's an eye doctor. Let's say there's an optometrist who lives in a faraway land. And he knows about the island of blurry vision. And he knows that things can be different for the people on the island of blurry vision. He knows things can be better. And so he sends them a letter. He says, dear citizens of the island of blurry vision, 
I want you to know, you have a problem. You think that you see reality, but you don't see reality. Other people see things differently from you. What you see is fuzzy. You're missing out. But the people can't understand this. They're like, what is he talking about? This doesn't make any sense. They don't have an ability to understand because they have no framework to imagine how life could possibly be different. So what is the optometrist to do? Well, he needs to set sail. So the optometrist climbs into a boat. He packs up his things. He's so concerned about the people of the island of Blurry Vision that he, he braves the journey. He gets all of his instruments together. He, he gets prepared to administer eye exams, to craft lenses, and to hand out a couple thousand pairs of glasses. And he sets sail. Now imagine that you are on the far shore of this island and you see him coming toward you and you see him coming with all of his things. You watch him land on the shore and he, he pulls out his big eye doctor chair. You know that one that you like pump it up and then it raises you up and then they, you know, all the equipment and you see all his stuff and he's waving around his eye chart that has the big E on it. And, and he calls out to them, hey, he calls out to you, hey, hey, you think you can see, but you've never seen clearly. Come and sit in my chair, and I'll show you what it means to really see. Well, what would you do? Would you, would you shrug it off and say, this guy is weird. What is he talking about? Or would you come to your senses and say, maybe there's something to this? Let's pause for a moment and talk about a theological concept called prevenient grace. Now, the members who just went through the membership class, we did a whole doctrinal study, and one of the things we talked about was prevenient grace, so they know all about this, and if you don't remember, that's okay. But, uh, but you know all about this, and uh, let, let's talk for a minute about prevenient grace because there's some of this going on here. Prevenient grace is a description of a type of grace that God gives us to help us with our sin problem. Provenient grace describes how God draws us to himself when we're stuck in sin. So three teachings about provenient grace. Letter A, provenient grace is God's grace that goes before we act. It's his grace that sets the stage that gives us an ability to respond to him. God empowers us with a free will so that we are able to choose good if we, if we are willing to. Letter B, let me say this a little more clearly. Provenient grace shows us that God is the initiator of any relationship with him. God pursues us. Just like the optometrist set sail, God comes after us. He knows we can't even possibly conceive of other possibilities. He knows that we can't imagine how things could be different. He, he knows, as we read in the scripture earlier at the service, he knows that we are but dust. He remembers that how he made us. And he says, I'm, I'm coming to them first. I'm making the first move. God is the one who pursues us. Just like when, when Adam, after Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden, and they were hiding in shame. Do you know how they got found? Because God went after them. When Abraham, before Abraham set forth on his life journey that God had for him, he was in his father's house in Haran, and God came after Abraham and called him out of his father's house, and he said, get out of where you are right now. I've come to you. I've, I've pursued you. I'm calling you out of where you are into something new. 
Same thing with Moses. Moses was tending sheep for a while as a shepherd before leading the people of Israel. And God went and got him out of the wilderness and pulled him out of that wilderness and said, I have a task for you, Moses. Then the New Testament talks about God's character as this loving initiator. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It doesn't say the Son of Man just came to save the lost. It says the Son of Man came to go out and seek them and find them and bring them in. He has been on a search mission finding us. The scripture tells us we love, why? Because, say it with me, he first loved us. That This tells us we are not even able to love God back unless he gives us the grace to do that. That's what prevenient grace is saying, is like we wouldn't even have the ability to do that without God's initiating that in our lives. And the passage that also tells us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This grace that is calling out to us while we were in the midst of our lowest points. That doesn't mean that God doesn't see us. God is with us in the bottoms of the, our deepest pig pens. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's prevenient grace at work. And then letter C, you also need to know that prevenient grace is for everyone. God's grace calling out to us before we are even able to respond to him on our own. God's grace is for everybody. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, will not perish. It isn't just that God gives his grace to those who are the most spiritual or who are the best case scenarios for coming out on the other side looking good. God gives prevenient grace to all of us. No human is left without the prevenient grace of God calling out to you. Now some of you might say, well I call it to God and I don't feel him. He feels far. I'm looking for God and he's not showing himself. I just want to say, you experience, the reason you desire to have God is because he's given you that desire. Satan doesn't give you a desire for God. Satan doesn't make you want to search for God or look for him. The fact that you have a desire for him is the grace of God at work in your life, even if you think it's not exactly how it should look. That is God moving in you. God is calling each of us, every single one, every single human in this room. And so God is the optometrist who sets sail for the island of blurry vision, who lovingly initiates coming to us and enables us to realize that we are not seeing clearly. So back to the prodigal son. Things have gotten worse and worse and worse. But behind the scenes in invisible ways, God is doing what God does to prepare him to hit bottom and to turn his heart back toward home. When we wander from home, God in his grace is already at work, tapping you on the shoulder, preparing a path for you to return when you will. Luke chapter 15, verse 17, describes the pivotal turning point for the younger son. It says, when he came to his senses... When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up 
and went to his father. Last week we talked about the gift of pain. How pain is a signal to you to pay attention. We talked about the gift of hitting bottom. Because when you hit bottom, it can make you desperate enough to finally turn back toward home. Does this feel like a good gift? Does this feel like a gift we want to open? Not at first. But it's the gift of coming to your senses, the gift of realizing, I have not seen clearly. The gift of realizing, I have missed out on so much. The gift of realizing, I thought this was life, but it's been death. Have you ever had that moment of awakening, that moment when you suddenly realize, oh, I'm not okay? Have you had one of those? That, that moment when, you, when you've, been, you know, you've been working hard to kind of try to make things work, and, and then that moment of just realization of, this is really a problem. This really can't get much worse. And it's a pivotal moment like that, uh, when you, you realize you're in a bad situation. But eventually you come to realize that what you thought was normal and fine and just what it had to be really wasn't and isn't. It's this pivotal moment when you realize how bad your situation really is and when you realize what a bad place you're in. It's a pivotal moment. The prodigal son has one of these. Things get worse and worse and worse until he comes to his senses and he has this pivotal moment. And he has what scripture describes as experiencing godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. The kind of sorrow that turns you back toward God. The kind of sorrow that softens your heart to the things that matter to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 talks about godly sorrow. It says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death. See, see, let me just pause there. There's a difference between when you, when, you, when, you, when you feel sorrow because you are in the pig pen and you are hungry and you are covered with mud and muck and you experience sorrow, that's one thing. But when you experience sorrow because you are in the pig pen and you are covered in muck and you realize, this is not what my father wanted for me. If I hadn't been so hard-hearted, I wouldn't be here today. I, I'm not supposed to be in this place. Verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. And this younger son, he experiences godly sorrow. And then he does an interesting thing. He makes a plan to save himself. He gets it figured out. Now, his plan isn't ultimately going to be what happens. It's not ultimately going to work. But at least it gets him on the path to returning home to the Father where he needs to be. Let me just give you a hint. Sometimes, if you experience this pivotal moment and you want to turn back toward home, you might not get it all right the first time, but God can use it to get you back to where you need to go. And that's what happens with this younger son. But he makes a plan to save himself. He makes a plan to save face. He says, I know. I'm, I'm going to do my best to fix this. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to apologize to my father. And I'm not going to ask him for anything. 
I, I'm just going to say, give me, give me a little corner of shelter, give me a little bit of food, but, but I'll work for it. I'll be your servant. I'll pay for my room and board. I won't ask for much. I'll earn my keep. And if he does it this way, nobody has to really forgive him. You know, it doesn't have to be all complicated and emotionally messy and, you know, make it all weird at home. He's like, if I just earn my keep, then, then I won't bother anybody. No one has to forgive me. I don't have to make up with my brother. I, don't ha- I can just kind of like keep, keep a low profile. I'll just work and earn my way back into my father's house. Since I can't be a son in my father's house, since I gave up being a son in my father's house, I'll be a servant in the household. And the scripture says, so he got up and went to his father. He got up, he turned around, and he turned toward home. But while, the scripture says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You might notice he doesn't get all the way through his planned speech. He doesn't get to the part that says, make me a hired servant. He gets interrupted halfway through. The father just starts talking. The the father says to the servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This prodigal had a face-saving plan. He will save himself. He doesn't need grace. He will just do the hard work. Reconciliation is unnecessary. He's just going to make the money, make up for what he's lost. He's going to pay it back. He doesn't need the grace. He's going to tell his father, this is what we're going to do. He doesn't need reconciliation with his brother. And his father says, oh, no, 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 no. You are my son. You are my son. This son of mine has come home. You are my son. And in this moment, the younger son has an opportunity to receive the gift of sonship or to reject it. He could have said, in a display of false humility. Oh, no, no, Father, no, really, I don't deserve that. Really, I I couldn't. I just want to be a servant. It's, It's better this way. Church, we do this. We do this with God. We say, oh, no, 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 God, you, thank you for forgiving me, but, you know, you can't really restore me. We say, God, I, you know, I'll, I'll trust you to get me into heaven, but I, I don't believe you can make me holy. So it's just better this way if I just, I'm kind of your servant. I just keep working for you and I do the best that I can. We do this with God. We say, God, I, I, don't, I don't think I can be a son, really. It's just not going to work. Now, sonship has some disadvantages. If this younger brother, or if this younger son accepts sonship, he will be under the authority of the father. If he accepts sonship, he's going to have to live with his brother, like in the same house. 
He's going to have to sit at the same table with his brother. He's going to have to make up with his brother. He'll be fed from his brother's property and from his brother's farms and from his brother's flocks. He'll be a recipient of grace from his brother. He, he won't have the self-satisfaction of earning his own way. He's just going to have to receive the gift. He will no longer be in control. He'll have to submit to the Father. Sonship comes with some requirements. Some requirements of receiving, receiving grace. The Father is never going to be satisfied with our faith-saving plans. He's never going to be satisfied with our plans to just make it all work out right. He's never going to be satisfied with our trying to work our way back into his house. We can't. The thing that's broken here is not so much the lost money or the squandered estate, even though that's shocking and a crazy thing to lose. The thing that's the most valuable thing that's been broken is the broken relationship. And there's absolutely nothing, there's no work that the son can do to make up and heal that broken relationship. He can't. Any new relationship with the father must be a pure gift. The son can't fix this. Let's talk about understanding repentance because repentance is what's going on here. That turning point when we turn back toward home. I think sometimes if you've been a Christian for a while, you hear the word repentance and you think, okay, repentance is for people who aren't Christians and it describes that moment when they repent of their sin and turn toward God and then they become Christians. That's true, but repentance is much bigger than that. Repentance is something that should be a part of every Christian's daily life. We are repenters. We are people who live in a state of repentance where we, c- we confess our sins and we receive the refreshing and infilling of the Holy Spirit. That, that's, this is the this, this cycle of living life in the Spirit. We confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And he restores us and renews us and, and matures us and brings us on to bigger and better things and, and different and harder and new temptations and things we need to overcome. But temp- repentance is for all of us. So let's try to understand repentance. The first point, letter A, is that repentance involves giving up pride and accepting graciousness. The son is never going to fix the relationship with the father on his own. He simply has to receive the grace. You know, it's a funny thing, receiving grace. Like, on one hand, we like it deep down because we need it. We need grace. And on the other hand, it just doesn't always feel good to need grace because we, we still want to make things right on our own. I can, I can tell you that the areas in my life when I've been most aware of struggling with pride have been the times in my life when I felt vulnerable or when I have, uh, when I have felt ashamed of something. And it's in those times that I've clung to pride more because I'm just trying to find a shred of self-respect somewhere. But repentance involves giving up that pride and accepting grace, which sometimes is hard. In the island of blurry vision, the optometrist has set up a place there. He's got his chair set up. He's got his eye charts. He's got his big gadgets that he brings to test people's vision. And he's invited you to come and sit in his chair. If you want to get evaluated, if you want your vision to be evaluated and to be able to be corrected, you have to sit in the chair, right? He, he can't 
he can't fix your vision or figure out what you need if you just keep standing across on the other side of the island. You have to come and sit in the chair. You've got to follow his instructions. You've got to answer his questions and submit to the optometrist so he can help you. The, the thing with blurry vision is that the, the people on the island aren't going to be able to fix this on their own. In order to get their problem fixed, in order to even know they have a problem, they've got to go sit in that chair. They've got to submit to this optometrist. They've got to follow the directions. They have to go through the testing and the evaluation. They have to admit, hey, there's something here that I never realized before. They have to admit, I was wrong. There is more to see. They have to admit, I wasn't seeing clearly before. I thought I was, but I wasn't. And they have to admit, I, I actually can't fix this on my own. And when someone submits to the doctor, when they let the optometrist hold the new lenses to their eyes and they see for the first time what they've been missing their whole lives, everything changes. The optometrist can't fix our eyes unless we sit in the chair. We have to submit to. We have to sit in the chair with the father. The son sat in the father's chair, so to speak. The son gave up his own face-saving plan. He submitted to the father's plan for sonship, not servitude. In verse 24, the father says, For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And we perceive from this passage and the way that it goes on that the son accepts being a son. He receives the gift of grace. He is able to receive the son relationship that the father wants with him. See, repentance involves learning to admit your weaknesses. More specifically, letter B, repentance is learning to let yourself be helped. You are not fully repenting of being away from the father's house until you let yourself be helped. Some of us will go to great lengths to repent of our sin, to feel sorry, to confess to God what we, what we did, but we just can't let ourselves be helped because it's too embarrassing, because it's too hard to let go, because we get all stuck on what we're supposed to do and we don't know what to do. Repentance is learning to let yourself be helped. How about you? What deathly ways of life are you holding on to right now? What are the things that you're clinging to that are bringing you death and not life? What are the things that are in your life that have taken you away from being in the Father's house to, to just drifting away from, from where you need to be? Maybe they're big things, maybe they're small things. How, have you, how are you wandering away from the Father's house right now? Maybe some of you here today are at the pig pen stage. You're at the pig pen stage. You are in the mud. You are at rock bottom. You know you're in trouble and you are ready for help. And if that's you today, what a gift to see that you're there. And you have the option to get up, turn back toward home, 
and come back to your father's house to, to live the way you know he wants you to. Maybe some of you are at the stage in the, in the passage of, you know the part where it says that he began to be in need? This is what I call the feeling the pinch stage. Things have gotten harder because of your choices and like all your big plans to do this whole big thing just haven't quite turned out how you thought they should and uh, you begin to be in need. You're, you're, you're thinking about hiring yourself out to be a slave to something in order to try to save yourself. You're trying to figure out some plans of, okay, like I'm feeling the pinch, not real sure what to do. It, it, some of you are there today. You're... You're a little uncomfortable because you know there's a part of your life that's just not right. You know God's not happy with this. You know it's not where you're supposed to be. You're, you're out of balance here. It's, it's, not, it's not where you're supposed to be. And, and you're feeling the pinch. Pay attention to that pain. Pay attention to that pinch. Don't wait until you get a sock in the eye where you pay attention to the pain. Pay attention to the pinch. And let the Lord use that pinch to nudge you, to turn you back around and come back to the Father's house. There's also the squandering stage. Perhaps some of you are in the squandering stage. You know that part in the passage where it said he, he began to squander extravagantly all that he had and engage in wild living. Now here's the thing about this stage of being away from the father's house. At this stage, it's fun. You get to spend your money on what you want. You get to do the things that you want. You're, living, you're doing all the things that you'd wanted to do. This is the fun part of sin. You're enjoying it. You're, you're doing all the things away from the Father's house that you wanted to do. And if you have a sense today that that might be you, where you know maybe you're not doing what God wants, but you don't really want to change, and you like enough of where you are that you're planning to stay there at the moment, I want to encourage you to pay attention and take warning to hear from your Christian sister in Christ to pay attention. It's not too late yet. You can still go back home. The fourth stage is at the beginning of the story when the younger son first leaves home. He first he, he's excited about what's coming. It says that he, he sets out the door, he, he sets off. I call this the just leaving home stage. This is the part where maybe you're still in the Father's house. Maybe you are still living how God wants you to. You're in alignment with God wants you to do, but, and you haven't actually done anything yet, but the temptation is there. You're thinking about it. Your eyes are starting to drift down the path, and you start to think, what might it be like out of the Father's house. I'm a little dissatisfied here. There are things that I don't like, and the temptation is flirting with you, and you're, you're dreaming about something different. And if you are aware of those unsettled sparks in you, those rumblings of dissatisfaction, those rumblings of maybe not being in sync with God, I encourage you to take caution reach out to other people in the Father's house. Let them speak into your life. Be honest. Confess your temptation. Receive accountability. Humble yourself.
I think we all hold on to deathly ways of life, don't we? Will you give up the pride that makes you hold on to that and accept gifts of grace that you don't deserve? Will you receive those? Will you let yourself be helped and quit telling God that you don't deserve it? Will you just receive his help? Ultimately, repentance also involves a third thing. Let her see. Repentance ultimately leads to joy. When repentance runs its course, when you, go, when you receive the gifts of grace, when you submit yourself to the Father, when you set aside your pride and you say, I'm willing to not let it be my way, I'm willing to do it God's way, I'm willing to pursue you, I'm willing to come back into the Father's house, ultimately repentance will lead to joy. This passage ends with happy people. This section of the passage ends with happy people who are celebrating, who are having a party. This is what it looks like to receive the son relationship. This is what it looks like after you confess, after you repent, after you are restored by the father into his house. They began to celebrate. 2 Corinthians 7.10 said, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And I love this phrase, leaves no regret. Godly sorrow leaves no regret. There's, there's celebration. Part of the passage we didn't read today then goes and talks about how, about the dynamics of this party and what's happening with the party. They have music. In fact, the music is so loud that people in the fields of the Father's house hear it and come to see what's going on. There's dancing. People are dancing. There's food. There's a feast. They've killed a fattened calf. That's a lot of food. The Father says, put on the party clothes. Men, get your tuxes. Women, get your gowns. Shine your shoes. Find those heels. Put on your jewelry. We're going to dance. And this is the kind of celebrating that happens when lost people come back to the Father. This parable, the parable of the lost son, is one of three parables that Jesus tells in Luke 15. Jesus tells three right in a row, and all three are about lost things. There's the parable about the lost sheep, there's a parable about the lost coin, and there's the parable of the lost son. And in the lost sheep, he says there are 100 sheep, 99 of them come into the fold, but there's one that goes astray, and the shepherd, because he loves his sheep, goes after and finds that one. The parable of the lost coin says a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one of the 10. And so she turns the house upside down looking for that one coin until she finds it. Then he comes to the parable of the lost son because the son is more valuable than the money. The son is more valuable than his sheep. A son is the most valuable of all. Jesus wants you to understand his pursuit of the lost. His pursuit of lost people like you and me. We wander off all the time. He is always gathering us back up again. He's always saying, come on, come back, come back. He wants you to know his pursuit of the lost. And he also wants you to know how happy he is when we come back. All three parables said they found the sheep and then there's a celebration. They found the coin and then there's a celebration. They found the son and then there's a celebration. 
Look, listen to what Jesus says in Luke 15, 7. He says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven. Rejoicing, where? In heaven. Over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and she calls her neighbors together and says, have a party with me, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The angels are having parties for when we come back. Heaven is a party place for when we come back. Church, the prevenient grace of God is chasing you and has always been chasing you. He is inviting you. He is calling you by name. He knows you by name. He's very interested in your life. He's calling you out of deathly ways into the joyful life in the house of the Father. You, some of you today, are in the pig pen stage. You know you're in trouble, and you're ready to turn toward home today. Some of you are in the feeling the pinch stage, and you have the opportunity to go do something drastic or to turn back toward home. If you're feeling the pinch, if if life is uncomfortable for you right now and you suspect it's because you're not really doing what God wants you to do, turn toward home. Some of you are in the squandering stage. Oh, you're here in church. You're here here in church. But you're, you're living wastefully. Take warning. Submit to the Father's household. And some of you are at the just leaving home stage. You, you, you have the rumblings of dissatisfaction and temptation is calling your name and you don't know what you're going to do yet. And I encourage you today to repent of that. To call out to God, more importantly to call out to the household of God's people and let them help you and hold you and guide you and instruct you. The Father is coming after you. He is pursuing you and he won't stop. And you've been invited, wherever you are in your journey, to turn your heart toward home again. And so, God, we come before you. Some of us are here today with hardened hearts. We pray for your mercy and your grace, God. We We pray on behalf of those who have hard hearts today that in your kindness you will lead them to repentance. I pray, Jesus, that you will give us a holy discontent in any areas of sin we are complacent with. I pray that you will make it so uncomfortable for us to be away from you that we will feel inspired to want to change. Lord, give us pain to draw us back to you. Lord, I also pray for those who, like the sun, are ready to crawl back toward home, but also, like the sun, feel very undeserving. 
and who, like the son, are saying, hey, I want a little bit of your grace, but don't give me too much. I don't deserve too much. And Lord, I pray for your help that we'll receive it. Give us capacity to receive more and more grace. Give us humility to just be overwhelmed by it. Lord God, in any area where we hold on to death instead of life, reveal the deathly ways to us, God. Bring us back into your household. Purify us, make us new, fill us with your spirit, and give us joy. In your name we pray.